Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there should be one near you, a hard uh, black Bible there in the pew. Mark chapter 11, and we're picking up where we left off last week, kind of going through the Gospel of Mark, if you're new with us. We've been um, in the Gospel of Mark since, you know, COVID started, so it's been a while. And uh, we're just kind of chugging along, and, and we're in Mark chapter 11 this morning, verses 12 through 25. Uh, let me remind you where we left off last week in verse 11. Verse 11, Jesus, he comes in, he's got the triumphal entry, he's coming into the town, he rides the donkey in, and then it says this, and this is just kind of a, it's just kind of a, a verse that takes us into the next section, and so it's kind of like one of those piecing things together. It says, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Well, it's kind of an interesting verse there. Like, well, why did he just go to the temple and look around and then leave? And it was late at night and it had been a long day. Well, he's going and what we're about to see in this next day is that he's coming back to the temple and he's got some, he's got some work to do. And so uh, we, we see that Jesus is walking into the temple. Now, I don't know about you. This is a picture of, uh, of a church that I got to visit in Augsburg, Germany, and it's beautiful. It's one of the, I mean, it is, everything is clean in that. It's not like this one, okay? So it is, it's like, everything's white and clean. There's all these statues. And the coolest part of this is like, you can't see it. But in the very, very back where the, where the stage and everything is, it's not a cross. It's a picture. It's, a, it's not a picture. It's a statue of Jesus. And it's life-size. And it's like he's walking towards you like this. So it's kind of wild, but, you know, I like it. And so um, it's just this beautiful church. And in part of the church, there were all these pictures of what it looked like after the bombings of World War II. Just decimated. And, and you're like, man, how could, how could they rebuild it so beautiful? Well, as we get into this section of Scripture, we need to have kind of a, a temple uh, theology. We need to understand where the temple is, what, what's going on. And so uh, this would have been King Herod's temple, this next, this next slide here. And King Herod's temple, was, it was massive. So we know that the, the tabernacle was given to Moses. Moses was given the tabernacle, and he was told how to set this up. And so it was to be the presence of God amongst his people. And so it was really like this tent with a fence around it, right? That's kind of what they had. King Solomon shows up after, after David and says, well, I'm going to build the temple that my, my dad wanted to build. And so he builds the temple, and King Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was, it was great. It was beautiful. And as we know, as King Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and he begins to wipe out and take everybody into slavery, he destroys King Solomon's temple. And so for 70 years, it just is laid waste. And so after the time of, of capture, the people by, by the king of Persia, Cyrus, he allows them to go back. And in Ezra, we see that Zerubbabel begins to rebuild. And so Zerubbabel, he rebuilds it, but it's not nearly as great as the temple that Solomon had built. So King Herod... At about 19 BC, I think it was, began to dismantle that temple and build his great big temple. And so this gives you some idea. He started the construction in 19 BC and it ended in 64 AD. It took a long time to finish this. And just, you know, six years later in 70 AD, the Romans come in and they wipe it out and destroy it. Just gone. So this gives you an idea of the size. So the tabernacle, you could fit three school buses in it. Okay? School buses. 
Solomon's Temple, 38 school buses. It's quite a bit bigger. But Herod's Temple, 1,590 school buses. That's how big this place was. So Jesus comes in, and he's walking around. He's looking at everything. And we see that he is disgusted by what's taking place. He, we see this because Mark gives us this sandwich-type uh, teaching here. He's going to sandwich the truth in here. So in order for us to understand this passage of Scripture, we need to have a new covenant temple theology. And so the bread of this sandwich is he curses the fig tree for no fruit. And you're like, why would that happen? Well, the meat of the sandwich is the reason. He's going to go back into the temple, and he's going to cleanse the temple because of no faith. And then you're going to get a little bit of bread on the end of that where he's going to give you a confirmation of what temple faith really looks like. So this whole time, Jesus is teaching through this section of Scripture. So as we know, the tabernacle or the temple, it, it represented the dwelling presence of God amongst the people. So Jesus comes into this building that was to represent his presence. But this is, this is what's cool. John tells us that that's just a building. Because Jesus is the presence of God tabernacling or dwelling with his people. It says that in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt. The word dwelt in Greek means tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled amongst us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the temple. He's the divine, glorious presence of God in a physical person dwelling amongst us. His people. Jesus even referred to himself as the temple in John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. I told you, it took a long time, right? And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple was Christ dwelling amongst us. He was the presence of God in the midst of the people. It's not, it's not a building. And Jesus is given this picture of what a New Testament theology of the temple is going to look like because if it's the presence of God, then you get more into Scripture where Paul begins to write, and the temple is no longer a building, but a body of Christ through the presence of the Spirit. So the body of Christ is the church made up of individuals, people who now house the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in their life. The presence of God inhabiting his people means that we are now part of this new temple. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? This is an interesting theology. Now you've got to follow along with it. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Jesus Christ gave up his life to purchase you back from sin, from slavery. And now he has placed his spirit within you so you are the temple of God. He is dwelling amongst us through the power of his Holy Spirit. This is, this is great. This is why we can worship in spirit and truth. Remember when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan lady and, and she's like, well, let me ask you where we should, where we should worship. 
on this mountain or this mountain? He's like, look, let me tell you the truth. There's coming a day where it won't matter if you worship on this mountain or this mountain because you're going to worship in spirit and truth. I'm going to give you my spirit and you know the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the temple theology, Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. The church is being built into the temple, a dwelling place, a tabernacle for the Holy Spirit. How remarkable is the fact that God wants to be with his people so much that he sends his spirit to indwell us. And this is why he says, there's going to be greater things done after I leave because I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did all of these works in this area. And it's not that we're going to walk on water and we're going to raise people from the dead. It's not that we're going to be able to do those things, but the, the church is going to expand all over to every single nation by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling his body, his people. So there's our intro. I hope you took notes because that's the first part. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, as we get into Mark chapter 11 again, guide us. Help us to see truth. God, we would ask that the spirit that you've given us would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. You're a good God, and we thank you so much for the great gifts you've given us, and mostly the gift of grace, the gift of your spirit, the gift of salvation and forgiveness, all because of your son, Jesus Christ, coming to dwell among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing I want you to see is Jesus curses a fruitless faith. He curses a fruitless faith. So beginning there, verse 12 of chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Many have really struggled with this section of scripture. They believe that this is not in character of Jesus. And so many believe this seems out of character because we all like a kind, loving, forgiving, gracious Jesus. And we like to ignore that there's also a fiery, judging, holy side of Jesus. And this is the part of that character that we see. How could Jesus curse a fig tree that just seems senseless? It seems like he's full of anger. And let me tell you, this is, this is the section of scripture that every person with anger management issues loves, right? Because they're like, man, Jesus got mad. He cursed a tree and flipped over tables. I can do it too, right? That is out of context. That's not what this is about. As we read last week, Revelations 19.12 says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, it's, it's one thing. You, you remember that look the mom would give? Yeah, it was like flames of fire coming out of her eyes, right? Now, just imagine if your mom or your wife, I can talk about her, she's doing nursery, uh, if your wife is a teacher. So then you compound the mom look with a teacher look. Guys, everyone in our, everyone in our family just goes, run away. So this guy, Joseph Klossner, he says this, 
This story seems like a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty for no wrong. How could, how could this be the character of Christ? To, to just curse a tree that is just a tree. I mean, it hasn't done anything wrong. See, the fig season would occur in the fall. Yeah, this is the spring. This is when they celebrate Passover. So Mark points out this fact, for it was not the season for figs. How could this tree get cursed? Because it's not even supposed to be producing figs right now. But it was in full leaf. It was showing the fact that it should have fruit in it. Because a fig tree would produce a fruit and then the leaves would come after that. So if it's in full leaf, then it should have fruit. And even, even if it doesn't have fruit at that point in time, it should have like a little bud or something like that that you could pick off and eat. And so he's saying nothing was on it. There was nothing on this, this fig tree. So Jesus uses this fig tree as an object lesson of prophetically communicating the hypocrisy of the temple, which he has seen the night before and he's headed to today. This tree represents the heart of the people worshiping in the temple. You see, one of the main objections to Christianity is that the church is filled with hypocrites. Have you ever heard that? Oh, the church, they're full of hypocrites. Those, those people, they put on a show, they act like they're Christian, but man, throughout the week, they're, they're just like everybody else. Paul even mentions this in Romans chapter 2, 21 through 24. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that, you, that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, look, if you live out a life of hypocrisy, the Gentiles, those who are outside apart from God, not just non-Jews, but those who are separated from God, are not going to see the clear view of who Christ is and what worship looks like. So when Jesus sees this fig tree, and he, he's given a prophetic illustration here of what the temple is, he's saying, look, the Gentiles are coming into the temple during Passover to see what, what it is about God that we need to know, and they're not getting a very clear picture. They're seeing a show. They're seeing that people are going through motions. Jesus was really hard on this idea of hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, 23 through 28, just to take a section of it, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guys straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the words of Jesus towards the religious leaders of that day. He says, look, on the outside you appear. You appear to be righteous, but on the inside you're full of lawlessness. What Jesus tells them is that hypocrisy is a heart issue. There's something wrong on the inside when you live out a life of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is righteous motions without right motivation. 
It's going through the motions of looking like you're righteous, but not having the true motivation of Christ to lead you towards righteousness. Hypocrisy, as it relates to the fig tree, is a fruitless faith. It's to claim one thing, yet never produce fruit. What's interesting is that Jesus was hungry. It says in verse, uh, end of verse 12 there, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So this tells us that Jesus probably had a long night. I, you can imagine that if this is the Passover week and Jesus knows what's coming at the end of the week, that he's probably not getting a lot of sleep this week. Would, would you imagine that? Knowing that the crucifixion is coming and skipping breakfast that morning on his way back to the temple to deal with what he saw the night before, he's hungry. Why would Jesus curse hypocrisy? Well, because there's a world that's hungry for truth, hungry for hope, hungry for peace, hungry for forgiveness, hungry for life, and hungry for Christ. So what happens when they come walking over to someone who looks to have the spiritual nourishment or fruit in their life, the, the fruit they need, and they find empty religious rules, empty words of worship in nominal Christianity. They walk away hungry. Now, I want you to understand this, that if we are the temple and people are watching the worship of our lives, if they see just empty motions, well, I was raised this way. This is what I was taught as a kid. We just carry on. We just keep doing this for the next generation. And someone who actually is far from God, not raised in a Christian culture, comes and says, it looks to me like you are claiming to have a fruit. You're claiming to have something that I need, this forgiveness, this love, this hope. And all I'm seeing is just a bunch of religious motion. Then they will walk away. Well, I guess, I guess Christianity doesn't have the answers for me. This is what we see a lot in the church, people walking away hungry. See, hypocrisy will leave you and others hungry. If right now you're living a life of hypocrisy, showing an, a righteousness on the outside, yet your heart is far from God, let me tell you something, you're walking around hungry and you're trying to fill yourself with the other things of this world. And you will remain hungry because there's a God-shaped vacuum in us all that can only be filled with God. And when you are not satisfied in your relationship with the Lord, if you're not being filled, then when someone comes to you looking for answers, you have nothing to offer except for empty religious motions. So let's keep going. Number two, Jesus condemns a robbing religion. Verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Let's keep reading verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 17 there, let me show that to you again. It says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? 
but you have made it a den of robbers. When Jesus enters, he's entering into this area called the Gentile court area. This is where all nations could come and learn and worship God. And yet this area of the temple has now been turned into a marketplace. There's pigeons to buy. There's goats to buy. There's sheep to buy. There's all kinds of sacrifices to buy. And, and what happens is, is you've got people all traveling in to, to do their worship, to do their sacrifice. And they're traveling some 10, 20, 30, 50 miles to come. And this is before cars, right? So you're, you're traveling for days to get to this temple to make a sacrifice and what's, what's the most difficult thing to do is bring an animal with you that you're going to kill. Well, let's just buy one when we get there, can we? Can we just run by, pick up one at Walmart, and then just, you know. And so this is kind of what's going on. There's just like, we'll just buy one at the temple. And plus, if we take this one, they're going to tell us it's not good enough. It's got a blemish on it. And so they're going to be like, no, you're still going to have to buy ours. Well, so when they got there to this Gentile area where there was to be worship and where there was to be teaching, not only are they having to buy the sacrifice, but... It's kind of like going to a football game or a baseball game. You know, like that hot dog you buy is like 25 cents, really. Like the cost of it's 25 cents, but it's going to cost you $6, right? It's going to be a $6 hot dog before it's all said and done because they're going to jack up the price because you have to buy it. And so this is what happens. They come in, they're like, well, I was going to buy this pigeon that would normally be 25 cents, but you're going to charge me $4 for it? Yeah, that's how much it is here. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and buy it. Whoa, we don't take that kind of money you're going to have to go over there and get your money exchanged. So you'd go over to the temple and you get your money exchanged. And so the exchange rate was always in the favor of the temple. So then you're really getting robbed here. And you're having to go through a lot of different steps to worship God. And so Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Is it not written in Isaiah that my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations? Is it not designed that this is the place where the presence of God should be so people can actually worship? And you are creating this mountain for them to get through. You're creating this huge obstacle in, in, this, in their worship. You're creating a huge obstacle for them to make the sacrifices to atone for their sins. You're standing in the way of real worship. It's for all nations. John Piper says this over and over. Jesus shows that the people of God will no longer be defined in an ethnic way. The new people that he is calling into existence is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing the fruit of the kingdom. Do you see the connection between the fig tree and now the temple? Jesus wants a people that produces a kingdom fruit, not people who are segregated by ethnicity or political ties or views or anything like that. And, and if you look at the church today, I'm not going to get political, but if you look at the church today, it's more divided now over issues that should not be issues and they should be united because each and every person has the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit producing in them a fruit that should make a difference in this world. So, Jesus says, what are you doing hindering worship? What are you doing? Kingdom-minded believers are more than Christian consumers. They're fruit-bearing believers. They're fruit Burying believers. So when Jesus cleanses the temple, he's challenging the religious status quo. He's, he's calling out spiritual consumerism and convenience to establish a Christ-centered kingdom for all nations. I think he does the same thing today. He calls out consumer Christianity and convenient Christianity. And he calls out a people that will be genuine worshipers of God. See, Christian consumer Christianity 
and convenient Christianity slowly alters our hearts so our preferences begin to take precedence over the worship of God. And this is what was happening in the temple. Our preferences, how we can easily come, was now taking precedence over why they were really supposed to be there, worshiping God. Unknowing the purpose of worship starts to revolve around me rather than God. What I like, what I get, what needs are met, what is easiest to attend according to my schedule, and so on. The temple begins to represent a marketplace rather than a place of worship. It's like, instead of bringing your sacrifice, it's saying, I'll go by Walmart, and I'll just pick something up along the way, because Walmart has something for everybody. Or, you know what, I don't want to go to Walmart. It's COVID, and if I can't do it online and pick it up in the parking lot, we'll just do it on Amazon. And it'll get delivered straight to my door. Convenience. Sometimes our Christianity revolves around what's convenient and not what God's called us to. The theologian David Wells says it this way, increasingly what churches are up against are churchgoers' preferences. This is a buyer's market. And what the buyer wants has become a large consideration of what the church wants to give. Pastor J.T. English says it this way, churches and ministries have to begin shaping their ministries around therapy and entertainment and self-actualization. And when we do that, what is worship no longer shaped by? God. Unintentionally, very quietly, and very subtly, we put our felt needs above the worship of God. So temple worship is no longer about who God is and what, but what they want. The consumer is in view, not God. Their experience of worship has become more important than the worship of God himself. Jesus condemns this consumer, convenient Christianity or spiritualism in, in, in this time. Jesus condemns the worship of, right, of worshiping a right God done the wrong way with the wrong motive and the wrong heart. So, do you know what the scary part of this is? They had no idea. They had no idea. They were worshiping the wrong way. They were just going through the motions. They were just doing what they had always been taught. They were making sacrifices and worshiping the best they knew how. And then Jesus shows up and he flips the tables. And he says, your worship has moved to you-centered rather than me-centered. You're, you're more about going through the motions than you are actually worshiping me. So temple worship in the New Testament takes on a whole new view. Let's keep reading number three. Jesus confirms a true faith. Jesus confirms a new faith. So a true faith. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, um, that, let me see if I can read it better. This is too small. Okay, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask, ask in prayer. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have, have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. It's tough getting old and not having reading glasses. So here's what is Jesus' answer to the withered fig tree. The withered fig tree is, hey, look, Jesus, the, the tree you cursed yesterday is dead today. And his response is not, yeah, yeah, it is. It's not, yeah, you see that? Boom. No, he doesn't do that. He says, have faith in God. Let me teach you. He's like, let me teach you a lesson. This was an object lesson of the temple. We left the temple and we come back and we see that no one's ever going to eat of the fruit of this because the temple is done away with. I'm about to be a sacrifice and that veil is about to get torn and people are about to have this Holy Spirit sent to them in Acts chapter 2 and it's going to be a whole new ball game. He's like, look, it's, it's over. He says, so have faith in God because true faith produces fruit. True faith produces fruit. Fruit is never manufactured by man. It's always grown by God. And sometimes we think, well, I better do this, and I better do this, and I better do this. And what we do is we burn ourselves out thinking we can be righteous apart from Christ, but we can do nothing apart from Christ. That's what John 15, 5 says. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from God, we can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit. So I'm going to give you three things of what a true faith looks like after Jesus says, this is what the temple is going to be like. Number one, have faith in God. It seems so simple, but Jesus says, have faith in God. Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abiding faith produces fruit, not religious functions. You can always tell if you're having faith in God by the fruit that's being produced in your life. You know, oftentimes we say, I have faith, and we make that statement, but true faith produces fruit. So a faith in God then produces a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So faith requires us to lean on God. Hudson Taylor said it this way, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. Oftentimes we claim to have a faith in God, but yet we claim that we can do it on our own. We continue to just do the motions. But there's times where we need to be weak enough in our spiritual walk to say, God, I just can't do this without you. I need you to bear a fruit in me, a fruit of righteousness that I can't bear on my own. Number two, pray and believe in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. These section of verses are often taken out of context. Oh, just pray and believe, you'll receive. You, you pray and believe, you can move that mountain. God, God can move that mountain. Uh, has anyone ever seen someone stand in front of a mountain and pray with all the faith that they have and all of a sudden that mountain just went and just moved? You're like, it did it. No. The mountain that stood in the way of the people who needed to worship God was hypocrisy. The mountain that stood in the way of people coming to God is their sin. The mountain that stands in the way of people's forgiveness is them not turning to God. And for some people who are far from God, it is, it is a mountain. It is an obstacle. But pray. Believe that God has forgiven you of your sins. Pray and believe that God will move the mountain of sin that's in your life. Pray and believe 
that God has power over death. Pray and believe that he will be risen again and so will, I, so will we. Risen to newness of life. Pray and believe is what he tells us. Believe, believing faith taps into God's power to accomplish his purposes. See, faith always produces fruit, but I would tell you this, that faith always is done in prayer. Your prayer life shows your faith. Believing faith believes that God wants to save people lost in sin, so it taps into the power of God to move the mountain of sin and obstacles that seem to stand in the way of their salvation. Do you know someone right now that needs Jesus? Are you praying? I mean, are you praying for that mountain to move? Do you know someone right now who's walked away from Christ and, and, and they're living a life of sin? Are you praying for that person? I told our, our prayer group on Wednesday night, so often we have an us versus them mentality. We think, oh, they're fools. At least we know what we're doing. We should be heartbroken for those who are separated from God by a mountain of sin. We should be praying for them. Believing faith is active in the kingdom, not passively associated with the kingdom. Jesus got active in the temple, didn't he? took a whip, flipped over tables, got in people's faces, stopped all money changing and began to teach. There was nothing passive about Jesus that day. Christianity is not passive. It's not. Christianity is passion for Christ and worship of him. And sometimes that passion comes across so in your face. You see, Andrew Murray said this way, Christ actually meant prayer to be a great power by which his church should do its work. And the neglecting of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses in Christian and heathen countries. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession, asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry to men. We are to be a praying people. A believing faith is a praying faith. James tells us this in James chapter 5, Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We are to be a praying people, praying and believing that God can remove sin from our lives. Prayer can move the mountain of sin in your life and in the life of those that you love, your loved ones. Here's the last one. And I think this is the most difficult. Ready? Have faith, pray and believe. Pray and forgive like God. So when they walk up to the tree and they see that there's no fruit there, this is what Jesus says. Hey, have faith, pray and believe, and pray and forgive. And whenever you stand, pray, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We can forgive because we have been forgiven through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way we can forgive. So let me paint this picture to you. There's temple worship going on. What's happening in the temple? People are bringing their sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. There's a mountain that's standing in the way where the money changers are there. They're, they're hindering worship. They're hindering forgiveness. And so Jesus says, look, as the temple moves forward, as the temple becomes the presence of God living in you, you're to be a people who forgive forgiving all nations. So 
The temple was a place of forgiveness for all people. Therefore, our hearts serve as a place for forgiveness for all people because that is where the presence of God dwells, tabernacles. So, the fruit of forgiveness is grown by God. He heals our hearts if we allow him in a way that we can in turn forgive those who have wronged us or sinned against us. Refusing to bear the fruit of forgiveness is refusing to allow Christ to bear fruit in you. You're simply saying, I prefer to be a leafy fig tree that bears no fruit than be a forgiving temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how Jesus says, hey, look, worship. Worship is forgiveness. And that forgiveness is now through your heart towards others. So today, I ask you to respond in whatever way God is leading you to respond. For many of you, you need to have faith in God. Maybe you said a prayer a long time ago, and you've seen a life that you've lived that has produced no fruit. And I would ask you to today say a simple prayer to God. God, forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner, and I know you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to down across for me, and I believe in you. Remove the mountain of sin that hinders me from worshiping you and produce in me a fruit of righteousness. For some of you, that's going to be a prayer of salvation today. For some of you, you need to be praying and believing that God will actually answer the prayers that you're praying. It's not just prayers that you've just, well, I prayed. But you're praying and believing that God will work to accomplish his will. And painfully, for many of us, we need to have a prayer today that says, as I'm standing here praying, as I'm bringing my gift to the altar, producing me a fruit of forgiveness for that person that I'm harboring ill feelings toward. God, I want them to be forgiven. And I want you to forgive them. And for you to do that, I will forgive them. So let's pray. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.